Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello, and thank you for taking time to join us on this podcast. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host with Calibri Healthcare. Today, we will be discussing vitamin D. We probably all know how vitamin D and calcium are good for strong, healthy bones. We've heard of the connection between osteoporosis and fractures from falls based on deficiencies in vitamin D and calcium intake. But there are so many other important functions that vitamin D plays as a part of our overall health. We'll cover all of that and more, including the intake of vitamin D and safe or safer ways to increase vitamin D when it's needed. In addition, we'll discuss how some consider vitamin D to be a hormone. Is it a vitamin? Is it a hormone? We also want to chat about sources of vitamin D, how to increase our intake if we have inadequate levels, and vitamin D in the laboratory. Are there things we should know about vitamin D testing or interpretation of lab results? Oh, and what about this question? What's the difference between vitamin D2 and vitamin D3? Well, we're super fortunate to have a pioneer here with us who can bring us up to speed. I'm joined by an international expert on vitamin D, metabolism, bone health, and skin and collagen matters, Dr. Michael Hollick. Welcome, Dr. Hollick. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Hollick is a dedicated and accomplished physician and researcher. He has been a professor of medicine, physiology, biophysics, and molecular medicine. He has also been a chief of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism, director of the General Clinical Research Center, and founder of a bone health clinic. As a graduate student, he was the first to identify the major circulating form of vitamin D as 25-hydroxyvitamin D3 and the active form of 125-dihydroxyvitamin D3. That's a mouthful. Dr. Hollick has been involved with learning and educating about vitamin D, cancer research, psoriasis, bone disease, calcium metabolism, and much more for 50 years. He was recognized by Thompson Reuters as one of the most influential physician scientists in internal medicine in the world. He has published more than 600 peer-reviewed articles, including one of the most cited reviews in the New England Journal of Medicine, Vitamin D Deficiency. Dr. Hollick, is there anything else you'd like to share with us about yourself with regard to your life's mission that has evolved around vitamin D? Like, how did you become the vitamin D guy, for example? It's a very good question um, that I'm often asked is, how did I get involved in vitamin D in the first place? And it turns out that I was a lowly graduate student at the University of Wisconsin. And in typical fashion, you know, students really want to work in the hottest topics. And back then, um, in, at the end of the 1960s, DNA was discovered and lots of activity. So I was interested in working in the field of DNA. But there were many other postdoctoral fellows and others in the laboratories. Um, and so they didn't need a simple-minded graduate student. And so they sent me over to Dr. DeLuca. And, and they told me, they said that you're going to be working in vitamin D. And I said, 
I have no interest in working with vitamin D. <laughs> it's, a, it's a boring subject, right? It's found in cod liver oil. It prevents rickets in children. And so why do I want to work in this? But it turned out that I made basically a sow's ear into a golden purse. And little would I know that we began to recognize that if you um, do animal studies and um, give vitamin D deficient rats vitamin D, it took 24 hours to work on regulating and increasing intestinal absorption of calcium. And so the thinking was either A, vitamin D is a dumb vitamin hormone, or B, is that maybe it needed to be activated. And so it was shown in pigs that if you gave huge amounts of vitamin D that they had in their blood, 25-hydroxyvitamin D3. The problem with that issue was that they got massive amounts of vitamin D. So how do we know that's just simply a toxic product? And so I was given as, a, as my master's uh, project is human blood, about 100 mLs of human blood from patients that were getting high doses of vitamin D because they had a disorder called hypoparathyroidism. And back then, that was the way to treat this disorder. And so I was given um, the blood and was told, follow the directions that was done for the pigs and that you should be able to be successful maybe in a year or two in getting a master's degree. Well, I started immediately and realized two months into it that there was a contaminant in human blood that was not in pig blood and that no matter what type of separation technique you used, you could not separate it. And so on Thanksgiving morning um, in 1969, um, I realized that I needed to do something else. And I found on the shelf a product that I had worked with as an undergraduate student and, um, and made a formulation with it. I put my material on, and two hours later, I had it purified, and we identified the major circulating form of vitamin D in human blood as 25-hydroxyvitamin D. We now recognize that it's what is used by doctors to um, measure your vitamin D status. It's used worldwide. I helped develop some of the first assays for it. But then the real question was, you give 25-hydroxyvitamin D now to vitamin D-deficient rats, and now it takes about six to eight hours to work. And so the question is, does it really need to get even activated more? We knew that the 25-hydroxylation occurred in the liver. And it was also curious at the time that patients with kidney disease had bone disease, and that if you gave them vitamin D, it didn't work. And so there was always a strange misunderstanding of how vitamin D and kidney disease uh, interacted. Well, it turns out that the kidneys activate vitamin D. And so now the hunt was on to identify it. And so, again, using my new separation techniques, um, I was fortunate enough to be the first in the world um, as a graduate student to identify the active form of vitamin D known as 125-dihydroxyvitamin D3. And then I decided that I, I knew all along that I wanted to get my PhD first and then get my MD degree. 
And, um, and so now I'm, I'm applying to medical school. And at the same time, we realized that kidney failure patients have bone disease. So what if you gave the active form, 125D, to them? Could you improve their lives? And so my roommate and I spent actually two years um, and worked on the first chemical synthesis of 125-dihydroxyvitamin D3. It was given to doctors around the world to treat uh, bone disease in children and in adults um, ca called X-linked uh, hypophosphatemic rickets as well as vitamin D-dependent rickets. We gave it to adults with uh, renal failure, children with renal failure that had improvement, significant improvement in their bone disease. It's one of the first treatments of choice for helping to prevent bone disease in kidney failure patients. And also, um, it was given to uh, rare genetic disorders called vitamin D-dependent rickets type 1, all very effective. So that was my first introduction into translational medicine and got me really excited about vitamin D. Yeah, then, it's no longer boring at that point. <laughs> exactly. And so then um, I, after graduating um, from the University of Wisconsin, both my medical degree and my PhD degree, I went to Massachusetts General Hospital and I was a resident. And at the same time, I set up my laboratory, a vitamin D laboratory, because I realized something that vitamin D, the major source for humans, has always been sun exposure. But nobody has ever asked the question, how do you make vitamin D in your skin? And what are the regulators? So for example, does skin pigmentation, time of day, season, latitude, um, and sunscreen use have any effect? And so over the next decade, I started doing all those studies and answering those questions. And then another interesting observation occurred which was we realized that not only does your skin make vitamin D, but also your skin cells have a receptor for vitamin D. And we wondered why. And so I then um, started growing human skin cells in culture and asked the question, if you added the active vitamin D that I had chemically synthesized, what would happen to those cells? And it turns out that it inhibited their proliferation and induced differentiation. Well, that's nice observation, but the real question was, is there any practical value? And so put my MD hat back on and asked, is there a hyperproliferative skin disorder, right, that is non-malignant, um, that has um, minim minimum treatment opportunities. And it turns out to be psoriasis. And so back in the mid-1980s, I introduced the concept of using activated vitamin D topically to treat psoriasis. We uh, published some of the earliest papers on this. So as a result, vitamin D has been kind of part of my life, and it's continued to grow in leaps and bounds ever since. Okay, that's really fascinating. Really is. Uh, tell us more about being busy over the years treating patients, researching, and being a subject matter expert. So I started um, my basic research career, um, like I said, in Dr. DeLuca's lab in 1969. I uh, got my master's degree um, six months later, got my PhD degree a year later, um, and then became a full-time postdoc 
and a full-time medical student. And, um, and, and then continued uh, after medical school at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, my residency. And then because of my expertise in vitamin D and metabolic bone disease, I set up a pediatric and adult metabolic bone clinic uh, as part of my activity at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, I continued that activity, um, then went off to Tufts um, and uh, at New England Medical Center, continued that activity. And then I was recruited by Boston City Hospital, which was considered one of the world's best hospitals um, to set up uh, and be chief of endocrinology, nutrition, diabetes, set up a uh, metabolic bone clinic for pediatrics and adult patients, um, and also to be director of the General Clinical Research Center. And I basically have been um, involved in helping infants, children, and adults with metabolic bone disease of various causes um, for more than 40 years. Wow. It sounds like you have a lot to share in helping us understand this topic. We are definitely grateful for the opportunity to chat with you. So thank you again. It feels like most people know that vitamin D is part of a healthy diet and that a deficiency of vitamin D can have negative effects on our bones and overall health. But I also think most people don't know what their vitamin D level is. I think many assume all is okay in the vitamin D department, but is it? Do you find that many people are aware of their vitamin D status? And is it true that you can get adequate amounts from dietary sources? Yeah, so herein lies the problem. Uh, which is, I always ask my students in my clinic and also my patients, um, where do you think you're getting vitamin D from in your diet? And it turns out that there are only really three or four major dietary sources. The first is oily fish, like wild-caught salmon, uh, mackerel, herring. We did a study and showed that farmed salmon have very little vitamin D. So that if you're going to buy your salmon and you want to get your vitamin D, it's in wild-caught um, fish. We found that there's about 500 to 1,000 units in about 3.5 ounces of, of salmon, a typical meal. Cod liver oil, which is not a favorite, right, for both children and adults. Mushrooms exposed to sunlight right? Those are the three major natural sources. That is it, right? Dairy wow. products are fortified with vitamin D, as is now orange juice, because we actually did the study and showed that you could put vitamin D in orange juice and it's bioavailable. There's only 100 units in a glass. And so, and it's known that the Institute of Medicine had recommended that children over one year of age and all adults need 600 units of vitamin D a day. Well, you can't get that from your dairy or drinking orange juice unless you're going to be drinking six glasses every day. And, and, and we'll talk about a little bit more later on that we think for maximum vitamin D benefit, you need much, much more vitamin D as recommended by the Endocrine Society practice guidelines on vitamin D. Wow. And what about the continuum from in utero through adulthood? Right. And so I often give talks about vitamin D is necessary from birth until death. And so good examples are 
during pregnancy, preeclampsia is one of the most serious complications. And we had uh, published many years ago with a group in Pittsburgh um, that um, higher your 25-hydroxy vitamin D level during pregnancy, lower was your risk of developing preeclampsia. Uh, up to 60% reduced risk by another study um, showing that uh, improvement in vitamin D status plays a major role. They've also shown that premature births are markedly reduced um, if blood levels of 25-hydroxy vitamin D are in the range of about 40 nanograms per ml. Um, and we also know that in utero, if, if the um, fetus is vitamin D sufficient, after birth, that infant is less likely to have wheezing disorders and asthma and reduces risk for dental caries. So that's just the beginning of the story, right? We also know that a study was done in Finland where they showed that if you give infants first year of life 2,000 units of vitamin D a day, it reduced their risk 31 years later of developing type 1 diabetes, right, which is an autoimmune disorder. We also know a study, many studies have shown, if you were born above Atlanta, Georgia, and, and for the first 10 years of your life, you live there you have 100% increased risk of developing multiple sclerosis for the rest of your life, no matter where you live. And so we think that during childhood, vitamin D is very important for reducing risk for autoimmune disorders and possibly even cardiovascular disease and other chronic illnesses later in life. We did a study with Dr. Dong in um, um, Georgia where he gave teenage black children that were 14 years of age, they were all vitamin D deficient. They had a 25-hydroxy vitamin D of around 11 nanograms per ml. We think that to be sufficient, you need to be at least 30. And um, he gave these children for three months 2,000 units of vitamin D a day or 400 units of vitamin D a day. And then he looked at blood flow using ultrasound um, to get a sense of the stiffness of the blood vessels. And he showed that those um, teenagers that were on 400 units a day raised their blood level to about 24, had no effect on their blood vessel um, uh, stiffness. But those teenage, uh, teenagers that were on 2,000 units a day Right? They had their blood level on average 34 nanograms per ml, and they had significant relaxation um, in their ar arterial um, system, suggesting that it, that is kind of the precursor for developing hypertension and heart disease later in life. So reducing um, that activity on your blood vessels can have a significant health benefit. That is fascinating. How do you think nurses and physicians could work better together to help spread awareness of the importance of vitamin D or to treat vitamin D insufficiencies? So I think physicians, you know, are often overwhelmed and they're, they're focusing on 
a patient with diabetes or thyroid disease or osteoporosis, right? But they may not be thinking about some of the benefits of vitamin D in many chronic illnesses. So, for example, a cardiologist probably wouldn't be thinking about their patient's vitamin D status. But the nurse, you know, being aware of this association could very well make the recommendation um, both to the patient, right, for the intake that, you know, you, you may want to think about having your vitamin D status determined, or maybe, you know, um, your cardiologist will recommend that as well and want to order it for you. Excellent. Now, there was a large-scale in-depth survey research, which I believe is some of the most recent national data of that level from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, or NHANES. In the early 2000s, approximately 25% were deemed at risk of vitamin D inadequacy and approximately 8% at risk for deficiency. With a little bit of online searching, it seems many more recent studies are based around vitamin D and effects on illness or disease rather than studies to estimate national averages for vitamin D status. Do you know of any more recent research that discusses the levels of vitamin D in the U.S.? So the CDC had also published a similar um, type of observation where they found out about 33% of um, both children and adults are at risk of vitamin D deficiency. Worldwide, um, I think it's well documented, and we've uh, published reviews on this, on average, 40% are vitamin D deficient and 60% are deficient or insufficient. Hmm. Goodness sakes. And the reason is simple, right? I mean, we said there is no vitamin D in your diet, right? right? And so as a result, it's mainly from sun exposure. And the problem, of course, with that is, A, we're all busy, and B, you only make vitamin D from about 10 a.m. until 3 p.m., and C, is everybody's been warned, always wear sun protection before you go outside, And so as a result, vitamin D deficiency is incredibly common because there really isn't very much vitamin D available in your diet. Mother Nature had always designed us to be as hunter-gatherers, right, exposed to sunlight every day and make your vitamin D. Mm -hmm. Good point. Do you find most people who you've interacted with as a physician have adequate levels of vitamin D? I mean, studies have been done in physicians, and they show that <laughs> most are vitamin D deficient. And a very interesting study done in Australia, in Australian dermatologists at the end of the summer, 87% were found to be vitamin D deficient. <laughs> really? Oh, dear. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> okay, can you give us an introduction to vitamin D? It's mo- about more than just our bones. So what does vitamin D do for us and how Primarily, how is it a vitamin and a hormone? That's the big question. Right. So by definition, vitamin D is a hormone, right? It's not a vitamin. And the reason is a hormone means that it's made in your body, right? And then it travels someplace to have a biologic effect. Well, vitamin D is made in your skin from sun exposure. So automatically it's a hormone because it gets into your blood and then it goes to your liver to get activated to 25-hydroxy vitamin D. 
and then to your kidneys to 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. So the fact that they have to get activated in two additional organs before they can go to the target tissue, by definition, is a hormone. It's not a vitamin. A vitamin means that it's something you can't make, right, that you have to have coming in from dietary sources. Right. Okay. And now why is vitamin D playing an overall role in health? And so we knew, right, that the major function of vitamin D is to maintain your blood calcium in a normal range. And the reason for that is that calcium plays a critical role in most metabolic activities, cardiovascular function, and brain function. And so when you are vitamin D deficient, right, and you're not getting enough calcium from your diet into your bloodstream, then you wind up stealing it out of your bones. So we knew that the receptor for active vitamin D, right, is in your intestine and in your bones. And then another place is in your kidneys because your kidneys can regulate how much calcium is lost into the urine, for example. But then in the, in the 1980s, we and many other investigators began to realize that colon, breast, brain, um, muscle, um, all, and your immune cells all have a vitamin D receptor. So then the obvious question is, why is it there? Mother Nature would not have it there if it wasn't having a biologic response. And so many investigators, including our own, showed that if you culture colon cancer cells or if you culture prostate cancer cells, incubate them with active vitamin D, if they had a receptor, it helped them decrease their malignant uh, growth pattern and, um, and, and help to make them more normal. A study done in pre-leukemic cells showed that if you incubated with active vitamin D, if they had a receptor, that they in fact became normal. This was a study done by Dr. Suda back in 1979. And so we then started asking other questions like your immune cells. So interesting that you have what are called T lymphocytes, um, which make cytokines, and B lymphocytes, which make antibodies. And so we had done a study with Dr. Crane's group many years ago, and others have done similar studies, and we asked the question, why is a vitamin D receptor there? It turns out that an inactivated T lymphocyte has no vitamin D receptor, and only when it's activated, then the cell needs something, and it develops a vitamin D receptor. And then when you add 125D to these immune cells, they have amazing effects on cytokine production uh, in regulating cytokines, which we think is now playing a role in COVID, um, which we can talk about a little bit later on. B lymphocytes, also resting B lymphocytes have no receptor. You activate them and they do. And guess what? 125-dihydroxyvitamin D modulates immunoglobulin synthesis. Why is that important, we think? Because we think that it may help reduce the development of autoimmune disorders by regulating and uh, down-regulating the production of autoimmune antibodies. Wow, that is really interesting. 
I'm amazed by all the magic that vitamin D performs. <laughs> I really am. This is really interesting. We're going to talk about sources of vitamin D in a few minutes. But before we get to that, let's talk about vitamin D as a fat-soluble vitamin. I know in nursing school, we were taught how A, D, E, and K were fat-soluble. So people needed to be careful that they didn't get too much of these in case the levels got too high. However, it seems nowadays that it's not that easy with a normal lifestyle and standard dietary intake to overdose on vitamin D without supplementing or otherwise taking in vitamin D. Have you met people who have had levels that were too high or is that rare? Well, let's put it into perspective. So I'm sure that you were taught probably, certainly I was taught, that of all the fat-soluble vitamins, certainly vitamin A is one of the most toxic that you have to be extremely careful about. But the second one on the list is vitamin D. And so pediatricians in particular have been very concerned about giving too much vitamin D to infants and worrying about toxicity. And what does toxicity mean? It means that your blood calcium and your blood phosphate level are elevated. That means that it basically starts to mineralize um, and, and develop kidney stones, cause what's called nephrocalcinosis in your kidneys, decreasing kidney function, and ultimately it will cause calcification of your blood vessels, ultimately leading to death. But we now recognize that vitamin D is one of the least toxic fat-soluble vitamins, and that you really need to be taking literally hundreds of thousands of units a day for at least a year before you have to worry about. And I'll give you an example. I had a lawyer call me up, and he was very concerned because back in the 1990s, I had been already recommending, others have as well, that if you improve your vitamin D intake to about 2,000 units a day, reduce risk of prostate cancer. And so he went to his local drugstore. There wasn't any. So nobody had any interest in vitamin D supplements. So he went on the internet and he bought a product made out of Canada. And he took two teaspoons a day because each teaspoon was said to have a thousand units in it. And he did it for more than a year. And he became severely intoxicated. And so I told him that, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And that setting the material up and we'll do an analysis of the product. The company forgot to dilute it. He was taking a million units a day for more than a year. So I became his doctor. I made recommendations, right? Told him you have to lower your calcium and you have to wear sunscreen all the time because he lives in Florida and no vitamin D in, in dairy or anything else. And we published him, New England Journal of Medicine, and showed that his calcium quickly came down with good hydration, and that even though his 25-hydroxy vitamin D was over 500, even a year later at 300, right, he had no sequelae, no complications from this, right? The Endocrine Society Practice Guidelines states that you have to have a blood level of over 150 nanograms per ml before you have to worry about toxicity. Vitamin D intoxication is one of the most rarest medical conditions caused by either inadvertent uh, intake uh, because the product wasn't properly made or intentional intake. Wow, amazing. So as you can see, a lot to talk about vitamin D. 
I'm, I'm amazed. I'm not even kidding. I, I just want to eat wild caught salmon in the sun this afternoon. That's really my, that's my goal for the day. I'm not yeah, even but kidding. Wait, wait until you ask me about sunlight and then I'll give you a better insight. Then I'll insight. change my mind? Okay. <laughs> no, maybe yes, maybe no. It depends upon where you where you live. Well, it's time to conclude part one of this podcast. Again, thank you for joining us. Please return for part two as we continue discussing vitamin D and health and explore sunshine and some laboratory-related questions. A sincere thank you to Dr. Michael Hollick for chatting today. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.